I'm just going to start by offering my own happy Mother's Day to all the moms here today. And um, thank you for spending the morning with us. And if you're new with us, extra welcome. Um, before I get started, let me see. Is anybody here a lawyer or studying law or studied law? Anybody? Perfect. Good. Because I'm going to be using some judicial terms. And I think I'm taking a little bit of artistic license with them. So I didn't want to get called out. So the word I'm staying true to. But, you know, in your points, you got to get a little artistic with those points. So was just making sure nobody was going to call me out on that. Um, a lot of you know my mom. She's, she's with us in our, in our church here. And I did ask if I could share this story before I shared public, publicly with y'all. But if you have had conversation with, with her, you know she's very chatty. You know she has kind of a colorful family history. Um, if you haven't got any snippets of that, I encourage you to sit with her. She's lots of fun, has lots of fun stories. Um, but I have a story. So she's, she's Italian. Actually, my grandmother is Italian. My, my grandfather was Sicilian. So people think those are the same thing. But if you ask an Italian or a Sicilian person, they're like, they are not the same. And they get a little prideful about it. But two, a Sicilian and Italian found each other. They made my mom. Um, so my grandfather was a kind of a, uh, he was a bit of a character. He was a little bit scary, hardly spoke English. Um, and you weren't really sure, like, they had money, but nobody's really sure how they had money. They just owned a bunch of property. He was Sicilian. I'll just slide that across the table and leave it there. Um, so we grew up not seeing him super often, but we grew up with our cousins. We were constantly together with my mom's sister and her family. So one day we're with the family. My grandfather is there, and my mom and my aunt and my grandfather are in this heated, like, yelling match. And none of us understood what was going on because they're speaking in Italian, of course, and there's some broken English in there, like somehow could use and lots of tears and very passionate as Italians can be. And so later we came to find out that um, that day my grandfather had informed my mom and her sister that he not only cut them out of his will, but he formally disowned them in the will, uh, which means they, like, not only weren't getting an inheritance, none of their kids were getting an inheritance. He actually made it as though they were never his. So, and then he went one step further, um, is he made it so that any, any of her, their brothers, they had multiple brothers, if any of them contested the will, they too would be disowned. So um, it was quite traumatic. It was, it was at the um, request of his mistress, then turned wife. I told you it was colorful. Um, so it was quite traumatic. It was quite dramatic um, and obviously very heartbreaking for my mom and my aunt, who not only were thinking, oh, we're not just getting an inheritance. Um, our kids aren't getting an inheritance, and we've been rejected by our father. And I'm sure you guys could see where I'm going with this today, is in an imperfect world, our inheritance is often based on merit or based on people's feelings or based on if we're good boys and girls and there's a lot of jockeying and competing and people make and break contracts all the time based on all of these fickle entities that are involved in that. But in the kingdom of God, that's not the way it is. Our inheritance is not based on our merit. We don't have to compete for it. We don't have to jockey for it. We don't have to be insecure about it. Um, like with my mom, at one point they were in the will. There was, there was an assurance, they thought, and that assurance went to poop when it was rewritten. But we don't have that in the kingdom of God. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, untouchable, granted to us 
guaranteed. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. If you didn't know, there was a last will and testament in the Bible. There is. We're going to be unpacking that this morning. Um, We're staying in Hebrews, which we've been in. Um, And I won't recap all of Hebrews, but basically the gist of we were talking about how Jesus is better, right? There was all these old things that used to happen or all these Um, ceremonial things or traditions, and we've gone over these last several weeks on how Jesus is better than what we saw in the past. He made a better way. And so we're continuing on that same theme this morning. So let's get into our scripture. I'm just going to read it. I forgot to start my timer, but Kelly does that all the time, right? So that's fair. All right. Uh, We're going to read that scripture together. It's going to be Hebrews and 9, picking up in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For where a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything thing is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary. I know this is a lot, but hang in, guys. We're going to unpack all of this. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year and blood with blood not his own. For then he would have, for then, this is speaking of Jesus, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is God's word. I'm going to pray before we start unpacking. Let we just thank you for your word this morning. May we regard it as precious. God, I pray for open ears and open hearts this morning. God, I pray um, just that you would speak your words to your people this morning. And may it not just fall on deaf ears, but may we walk out of here transformed, knowing more of your character, more security. In Jesus' name, I thank you for this. Amen. All right. So in order for us to establish and unpack how we got here to this portion of scripture, I just want us to quickly look back at, because we're talking about there was an old covenant and now there's a new covenant, right? And I know that there's been some unpacking of that, but I'm just going to go ahead and remind us of what we've seen happen and how we got here, right? If there's a new covenant, there had to be an old one. What was that? Why do we need a new one? So basically, God in the beginning... Adam and Eve, they messed up, right? And then God comes along and he connects with Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm going to read that portion of scripture. And God gives Abraham a promise. This is what Genesis 12 says. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I love, that's my emphasis is mine, but I love that. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whom, and him whom dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that happens in Genesis 12. God makes a promise to Abraham. And then what happens, right? You guys know the Bible story. As per usual, people do their own thing. Lots of shenanigans happen. The Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians. We come to Exodus 19. almost forgot that. We come to Exodus 19, and God brings the people out of Egypt. So he frees the Israelites. He brings them out of Egypt, right? And then we come to Exodus 20 through 23. God reestablishes his promise with his people, and he lays out the law. And for those of you that think God is just like, why did he create all these rules? I think this has been said here before, but the rules weren't just so like, God's not just some like grumpy church lady in the sky that wants to give you a bunch of rules. The rules were for our benefit. They basically, not only do they point to what's coming, which is Jesus, but they are a custodian, meant to be a custodian of us until Jesus comes. So what does that mean? It's meant to hold a place for us to look and go, this is good. This is right. This is good, right? Because I, I, I liken it to this. Have you guys ever been driving and you see, you, like, there's a road sign that is the most Captain Obvious road sign? I couldn't even think of one this morning. I thought this was an example this morning. I couldn't think of a Captain Obvious road sign. But there's a road sign that you think, they did not have to spend taxpayer dollars on this road sign that is just complete and utter common sense. Kelly says no dumping, right? That's common sense. Why did they put that sign up? Because some idiot was dumping in the area or doing whatever the thing the sign says. And you think it's common sense, but obviously it wasn't. And guess who's the idiots in this story? We are. So we needed something in his kindness and in his grace. He gave us these laws to say, hey, guys, this is what's good and right. And this is how you follow me. It was supposed to be a help, right? He's creating a concession for us in order to run hard after him. And of course, I love this. If you go back and read a portion of scripture, Moses reads all, all of the laws one by one. And, and after each one, all of the people said amen. So at the time, the people were like, yes, this is awesome. We're going to follow your law. They all said amen. We're in. And then in Exodus 24, um, God seals that covenant with blood. And I want you to just like put a little pin in that because we're going to come back to what that blood means later. But let's just, he seals the covenant with blood. And of course, what happens? Even though people said amen, what happens with the people? They all fall. We all mess up, right? And let me just tell you, this wasn't a surprise to God, right? He basically gave them these pointing forward to what was to come. And we know this because a couple weeks ago, even in um, Hebrews 8, I think it was Kelly read to us that portion of scripture. It's in Hebrews 8, but it's also quoting Jeremiah 31. And God says this. Um, let me pull out that scripture. Not sure I wrote it down, but basically he's talking about um, the covenant being written on our hearts. So it's rather than something that we're doing externally, it's going to be become who we are. And of course, what he's speaking of is Jesus coming and fulfilling that. So we know that it wasn't a surprise. He's prepared, right? God's not making this up as he goes along. He, he's known the story from beginning to end. So how do we get from this Old Testament covenant, which is all of these laws, um, lots of 
sacrifices are required to what we're talking about today, which is this new covenant, right? Because now we've established something has to happen. And the reason it has to happen is this, okay? When God makes a covenant or he makes a promise, he is bound to himself by that promise. I know this is mind-blowing, right? Because we're so fickle. We're not very faithful. But God is perfectly faithful. So he made this promise to Abraham and and to Moses, and he is bound by that promise. But he is simultaneously perfect, pure, holy. So he demands perfection. What do we do with that? This has to be fulfilled. Like, he absolutely has to fulfill the promise, but he absolutely has to demand perfection. How do we reconcile that? And that's where this word, right at the top of our scripture, we see the word mediator. And that's why we needed a mediator. God and man needed a mediator. And who is that mediator? I have three points this morning, of course, because we're not biblical if we don't have three points. Um, So we're going to start with point number one in this text is Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our mediator. So in my mom's situation, they probably could have used a mediator, someone to say, hey, this doesn't seem quite right. Seems kind of shady. He took that option away from them because he didn't even acknowledge them as children. But conversely, right? So my grandfather, corruptible, flawed, God, incorruptible, and actually wants to have relationship with us. He wants this promise to be fulfilled. He's desperate for it. And if you think the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God, I encourage you to pick up your word and read it because he's the same God. And he, he perpetually creates situations and moments and concessions in order to fulfill his promises, in order to to have relationship with his people. And so he wants us to be blessed. So how is Jesus our perfect perfect mediator? How and why? Well, let's go to Hebrews 4.15. We read this before, but it says this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, right? He's been through it. Jesus walked what we walked. So that makes him know and and sympathize and empathize with our part of the party, right? The uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 also says there is one mediator between God and mankind. Who is that? It's Jesus. And Jesus himself says this of himself in John 14.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we've established that Jesus is God, right? And and he is the way to God, right? And he is fully man, right? We've established that. Then what about representing God in perfection? Well, we know in Genesis 126, the Bible says, let us make God and let us make God, let us make man in our image. In our image, let us. And so we know that Jesus was there from the beginning. So this makes him the perfect entity to be our mediator, to reconcile the old covenant to the new covenant and that make that transition. He's a perfect negotiator. So Jesus is not only our mediator, that's point number one, but point number two, Jesus is 
our executor. And I, I kept tripping up on this, not wanting to say executor, because that would have been really bad. <laughs> he is our executor. What is an executor? An executor, this is where I'm taking a little bit of license, authors the will. And if you go, if you go and actually read the definition, it says the executor ensures that all debts are paid. Isn't that amazing? So, okay, who better to ensure that all debts are paid than the one who wrote all the rules? He knows the beginning from the end. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, as it says in Hebrews 12, 2. He is incorruptible, as I've already said. He's good. He's perfect. And Jesus says this of himself. I and the Father are one. So in order for him to, because only God could really ensure all debts are paid, right? We've already established that. We've messed up over and over and over again. So if he and the Father are one, then him and him alone can ensure that all debts are paid. Right? And then not only is Jesus our mediator, not only is Jesus our executor. I knew I was going to say it. I knew it. Executor. He could be our executor. Thank God he's not, right? He's gracious. Uh, Number three is Jesus is also our benefactor. And if you don't know what a benefactor is, the benefactor is the one with all the goods. Like my grandfather was the one with all the goods. It would have been nice to have some of his goods. (laughs) Um, he's the one with the power to give us the thing that we're getting, right? And his goods are good. It's good. The things that we're going to get here that we want to inherit here, they're perishable. This inheritance is imperishable. Um, and, And he, as our benefactor, unlike my grandfather, is perfectly faithful. So what is 2 Timothy 2.13 says this? If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Thank God for that. He cannot deny himself. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. I'm just establishing his faithfulness as benefactor, right? I'm establishing that he is a good benefactor. He has good things to give. He's perfect, and he's faithful. Joshua 21, 45 says this, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Psalm 33, 4, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Right? We can probably go on and on. So we've established as benefactor, again, unlike my my grandfather, he's perfect, he's good, he's faithful. But not only that, so we, we know he's the benefactor, we're inheriting something, right? We're talking about his last will and testament. What exactly are we inheriting? What, what is this thing that we, we get to have that we're waiting, eagerly awaiting, that we don't have to pay for, that we don't have to compete for? Man, there is so much in Scripture So all I'm going to do is just rattle off a bunch of things that we're inheriting. It's not exhaustive, but we're going to just get a little earful this morning. Of course, the first one is what? 
salvation. We're reconciled to him. We stand before him righteous. We're adopted as sons and daughters into his kingdom. So he didn't just save us and then leave us. Like, we don't just rescue an orphan off the street. He brings us into his home. We were offered forgiveness. We are holy and blameless before him. He makes his plans known to us. That's part of our inheritance. We go before him directly. We inherit hope, not just here on earth, but hope in eternity. These moments are light and momentary, the Bible says. We're satisfied in him. We're given the Holy Spirit, which in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit equips us and empowers us to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and of course, we have victory over sin and death. That's all part of our inheritance, something that we didn't have to fight for, we didn't have to beg for. It's just Jesus and his kindness, being our mediator, being our executor, God, our perfect benefactor bequeathing these things to us. And how did we get here? He, he, what, we walk through these steps, and remember I said to put a little pin in the, the quote about the shedding of blood. We're going to revisit that. Because a lot of people look to Christians and they go, your faith is a little weird. Like, and it is. We talk a lot about blood. We sing about blood. I don't know any other like entity where you like sing all happy about blood being poured out on you. It seems odd, right, if you don't know the Bible and if you aren't um, familiar with what this actually means, okay? So what blood represents, it's not that the blood, like when they sliced open an animal to atone for our sins back in the day, it wasn't that the animal had some kind of magical potion in their blood, that suddenly, like, a spell was cast, and we're suddenly free from the sins we, we committed. It's that that blood, it represents life, and it represents death. And when we sin against God in his, all his perfection, because he demands perfection, and he demands justice, and purity, and holy, and all these things that we cannot attain, we actually owe him our life. The, the, the consequence for that is our life. And in his kindness, he made a concession for us through the blood of animals. But that would have to be done over and over and over again. And so what does this say when Jesus came? It was once for all. Because he was perfect, right? We, we see that in, in verse 22. We see without the shedding of blood, there is no for, for forgiveness of sins. And then we see later that even those things required sacrifices, even though even the old covenant required sacrifices. And we see that those things, it says, I think it's in verse 25, it says, were just copies of heavenly things. But heavenly things required something even more. So right here on earth, the, the animals were copies, the sacrificing of animals were copies of heavenly things. Heavenly things actually required more. What is the more? It's Jesus. And all the things I just went through, being our mediator, being our executor, being our benefactor, doing what we couldn't do on our behalf. And it was required. It's, it, it, I don't think you could get a not, an unbeliever to fully understand that, but if there is anybody here that, that's not there yet, I'm trying to make this bridge of like, one, it wouldn't have been that odd for them then like it is for us today. But two, it's not just about the, the gore of this happening. Though let me just talk about that a little bit. So 
Sacrificing an animal would have been costly for them. They would have had to go and buy the animal, have the animal, or give up an animal that they could have eaten or sold or whatever. It was messy. It was gory. It was abhorrent to look at, right? We think of it as this just like, oh, cute, like picture that we're looking back to. But it is all of those things, and it's meant to be. Why? Because sin is all of those things. It's a picture of all of those things. And so when we look to Jesus on the cross doing what he did once for all so that we don't have to go through that anymore, we should feel some of that tragedy, some of that ache, because that represents sin, and it represents the death of what we owed has been fully satisfied in him. Um, Kel and I, this, this, this week, we were in England and uh, some of you know, we went to visit a couple castles. The first one we went to, Kelly wasn't all that interested because he said it's too new. It was built in the 1700s. I thought it was super cool. Um, I felt like a princess. We ate tea in the garden. But the second one we went to um, was this, it was built in 1083. So much older. Um, and, and actually, it's up on this up on this hill, it looked just like a fairy tale. It's up on this hill, it overlooks this gorgeous rolling hill valley, and then a cobblestone street leads into this little old village, just like, I don't know, Be- Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, we, we kind of like broke out into song there. It is amazing. It is, um, but it's not, obviously it's not still built up, so what happened is, I won't go into the whole history of the castle, if you want to look it up, it's called Corf Castle, um, but it's in ruins. It's called, I think it's formally called Beautiful Ruins. So there's places that they've deemed formally beautiful ruins. And it really is just that. It is something to behold. It is beautiful. And I think, like that castle, what Jesus did on the cross for us was beautiful. It was something to behold. It was majestic. But we often look at it like I look at that castle as something we just sort of visit in our mind's eye as like almost as if we're looking at a nice painting. And I want to encourage us here this morning as we're talking about Jesus shedding his blood once for all, paying our debt. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, there's a, there should be a reverence in our heart, but there should also be not just a, because we're very linear, right? God's not linear. Like, we deal in time like this. That's just, we're bound to time like that in our humanity. God is outside of space and time. So we look at that as a point in history that we just sort of look back, and I think it becomes so far for, removed from us on this timeline that it just becomes, again, like we're just looking at this castle, like a nice something to look at. And it loses the power and the impact of what this moment was. So people in the Old Testament, it was um, normal for them to slaughter animals. It happened at least once a year on the Day of Atonement, right? They would sacrifice the animals. And I'm sure it was gory, and it was gross, and it was costly, all the things I already talked about. But they had this constant reminder of how gross sin was, because it was right before their eyes all the time. And we still have that with reading about and unpacking and and walking with Jesus, but we don't have, like, it right physically in front of us. And guys, if I can encourage you 
to, as much as you can, visit that moment with as much awe and reverence and ask God to reveal the power of what Jesus did on the cross for us and not just let it be like a work of art that we're looking back at. Because he fulfilled something that we couldn't fulfill once and for all. I was listening to a preacher this week um, on this particular portion of scripture. And, um, you know, we like to focus on our inheritance and often we glaze over what we're escaping. Nobody likes to talk about hell. Um, We glaze over that because we just want to talk about the thing that we are getting, all the things that I rattled off. Um, But he said this, when you reject what Jesus did on the cross, that payment that he sent. If you say, like, actually, I'm the answer to myself, that's everybody nowadays is living their own truth. They're just imperfect people over and over and over and over again making imperfect payments. And the the imperfect payments is not enough to get you into heaven. It's a rejection of what he did. You are not the answer. You did not live a perfect life. You were not fully God, fully man. You were not there from the beginning. You and the Father are not one. All of these things I've already said. Only Jesus could do that for you. And the beautiful thing of that is it means the striving striving can cease. Right? The imperfect people that go over and over and over again making imperfect payments, there is perpetual striving because you just never know if that was enough. So the good news is that has already been done for you. Once and for all at that point in history. And so all you have to do is say, I confess that I actually can't do this on my own. I repent from what, what I once was, and I'm going to run hard after you, Jesus. I surrender to you. It's that simple. All you have to do is say yes. How amazing is that? So I'm just going to pray for us this morning. I hope that makes sense. I'm sure I left some stuff out that I wanted to say, but I'm just trusting that what God wanted to say to you this morning got out to you. God, we just thank you for the beauty of your word this morning. God, we thank you that at the cross and in Jesus' resurrection, all striving ceased. We thank you for the gift of salvation this morning. Lord, I pray for anybody here that is seeking, anybody here that is unsure, God, that would you woo them? Would you reveal yourself to them this morning? Would you show them the simplicity and the beauty and the magnificence of your gospel this morning. Lord, we come to you with awe, with gratitude, and with surrendered hearts. And we pray that it wouldn't just be a moment this morning, but it would be a continual surrendering of our lives as we look to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith.